latest episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is The Evolution of an RIA from Practice to Enterprise, a conversation with Tim Bellow, Managing Partner of Merchant Investment Management. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. As we record our most recent episodes, it's impossible not to recognize how much the world has changed just over the last couple of months. I'm honored that our guests have taken precious time in what has become an abnormally hectic schedule to share their ideas for navigating the crisis and their thoughts for the future. And while everyone fully expects the evolution in the space to accelerate as a result of the crisis, I'm also happy to say that the resounding tone is one of optimism. In talking about change, we often discuss how the independent space has evolved, and in particular, the burgeoning cottage industry built to support it. Today, we find a vast array of services available to advisors who are looking to break away and start their own independent firms, plus a host of services available once they've made the leap. Merchant Investment Management is one such firm within the space that was built upon a unique value proposition one that speaks to how much the ecosystem has truly grown. As my guest, managing partner Tim Bellow describes, the firm was designed to help breakaway advisors go independent, providing a glide path from which they could build their businesses and choose to fly off on their own. But to further that mission, Merchant also works with established wealth management firms serving as a capital partner and taking a non-controlling minority stake with a goal of helping them achieve growth and scale. And it's this ability to serve simultaneously as both a capital and strategic growth partner through an end-to-end continuum of services that makes Merchant unique. Yet Tim's story is unique in and of itself. As an early stage partner at Dynasty Financial Partners, where he was in charge of strategic implementation and advisor identification for the Dynasty Network, he has a unique lens into the RIA space, one that was much less mature then than it is today. So I'm excited for him to share how his experience has informed the growth of Merchant, as well as get a sense for how a firm like Merchant adds value during times of crisis, plus his perspective on the industry as a whole going forward. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. Tim, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Thank you so much, Mindy. It's great to be with you as always. Tell us a bit about your background, if you would. Sure. At the beginning, and I'll give you a quick, simple version. I was raised in and around the asset and the wealth management space, so broad finance background. I'm smiling as I describe this because I started my career at a really great firm, a special place, was mentored quite a bit there, a firm called the Permal Group. 
the firm doesn't carry its name anymore. It's gone through a couple of events and sales over the past few years. But started the Permal Group and from there went on to a firm that many people have heard of these days called Skybridge Capital. And actually there is where I was able to create a great business partnership with one of my current partners today, Scott Prince. So I spent a, a bunch of time at Skybridge Capital running their global platform business. And then from there, I met uh, Cheryl Penny and uh, you know got together with the Dynasty, uh, the Dynasty Group and helped get Dynasty Financial Partners off the ground. And that was a, a great experience. Learned a lot there and had a great time. And then after five years at Dynasty, I moved on to start the merchant. And that's where we are today. So that's the short version, Mindy. Well, and I appreciate it. So what is merchant investment management? Well, for starters, it's really, it's a family. It's a bunch of people that have known each other, worked with, worked for, worked against each other for the better part of our careers. Some of us have grown up with each other. Our significant others are friends, our children are friends. And it's really just a truly unique environment to operate in every day, to work with people that you genuinely care about. And so we're very, very lucky for that. Structurally speaking, the firm's a private partnership. Further, we're an operating company, which is an important point to make in terms of what we are. And in practice, we're a growth partner and we're an optimizer to independent wealth firms, Mindy. That's that's what we do for a living every day. And I also touched already on the, the fact that we're such a closely knit team. But in short, again, that's what Merchant is. And who are the leaders behind the firm? Well, it's a broad team. I think we're all leaders. Uh, that's how we all kind of came together to be, to be with one another. We've got a special group. But more specifically, you've got Mark Spilker, Scott Prince. Rick D'Amico, Dave Morazic, Brian Staff, Matt Brinker, John Geller, and Amit Grover. And I know that sounds like a long list because it is, but each of those folks does contribute a unique component to the business to make what it is today. You know, Mark's background, having ran the wealth and asset management businesses at Goldman Sachs is obviously very relevant to where we are today, what we're doing. He also was prior to Merchant, the president of Apollo Global Management, which is quite the player in the private equity space. You know, Scott Prince, another one of the firm leaders, was actually Mark's college roommate, and they started at Goldman together. And Scott, uh, Scott further to me, has been like an older brother, a friend, a mentor, and is now a partner. So Scott is one of the leaders of the business. And then Rick D'Amico, who I think you know over the past couple of years, uh, heads up our whole credit operation. And Rick and I grew up together. So uh, we go way back with each other. Uh, our parents were friends, which just makes it such a special relationship between Rick and I. Dave Morazic, Really, really relevant background. I think he's probably one of the most talented structural and legal minds in the space. He was prior to this the general counsel at Focus Financial. Brian Staff, who at one time was the president of PKS, his family founded the firm in the 80s. Uh, Michael Staff, his father. So Brian and I go back together and he, he's on the team. Matt Brinker, who recently came on, you know, obviously did a great thing over 13 years uh, side by side with Joe Duran at United Capital. And uh, we, as I mentioned, John Geller, who helped, I think, at least write a big part of the playbook in the independent wealth space, specifically over the tenor of his you know, the time he spent at Fidelity. And then my good friend, Emmett Grover, who's a CFO, who was the CFO of Dynasty for years prior. That's the team. So it's an all-star cast for sure. And I want to come back to some of the hires, specifically Matt Brinker. But before that, tell us a bit, if you would, about the firm's different business lines, the work that you do. Yeah. We really have four business lines, but there's three primary business lines. We have our equity business, which is called Merchant Wealth Holdings. That business does the minority, non-control, collaborative growth partnerships with firms. And simply said, we make these durable quasi-permanent equity investments in, in independent wealth managers. Those stakes are sub-20% stakes, and, and that's our equity business. The second business we have is a, is a lending business called Merchant Credit Partners. 
it too, like our equity and holding company, like our equity business and our holding company, our credit business is an operating company. It's not a fund. Uh, it's a private credit business. So you have non-bank financing coming out of that, that group used for the purposes of M&A, advisor recruiting, working capital, dividend recap, succession planning and the like. So that's our, that's our credit business line. And then we have a services business line where we have conviction around certain services companies that are essential parts to the wealth management supply chain. And that's where, Mindy, we have our investments and our partnerships with firms like Advisor Assist and Compass CFO Solutions. So think of all the things that are needed in the chassis of an RIA. That's our services business. And the fourth business is, is more purely a reactive one, but it's going to be more and more an essential one, given especially what's happened in the markets, whereby we're going to be working in the asset management lane of the marketplace with a tilt towards the, towards the alternative investment arena. It's just so important, especially now, Mindy, right, with the, with the dislocation, the fracture we saw in the market for people to really understand what it is that's available to them in the asset management part of the market, specifically the alternative space. So those are our four business lines. Yeah, and appreciate that. I definitely want to delve into some of those business lines and more about the specific work that you did. But I read with great interest when you hired Matt Brinker, who is, you tell me, in charge of corporate strategy, equity partnerships, and growth strategies for your partner firms, for the partner firms of Merchant. I know Matt spent 13 years previous to joining Merchant as the chief business development officer and a major player at United Capital Advisors. So what can we and our listeners extrapolate from Matt's hire about the goals for Merchant and any insights he's brought to Merchant from his United Capital days? Sure. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, it's one of these things, Mindy, in the marketplace, when you think about what you want to be as a business when you grow up and, and we're still early on, obviously, I think I think the whole industry is, frankly. But with that said, you look at somebody like Matt, you look at somebody like David Mrazek, I look across the industry and I see just so many talented people. And if you could have it your way, you'd, you'd be working with all of them. And uh, Matt's a great example of that. He's somebody that uh, over the last 10 plus years I've sat on panels with, I've competed against, I've actually always admired everything that Matt has done, the way he's carried himself in and out of boardrooms. He's just a real special person. Uh, and over those years, we, you know, competing, frankly, with each other, we became friends. We earned each other's respect. He won against me more than I won against him. I'm comfortable saying that. <laughs> and then, uh, and now we're partners. And I think the key word there is we're partners. So to say it differently, we didn't hire Matt. Um, we chose each other. It was quite the process with each other. We went back and forth and we ended up bringing him into the partnership and into the senior ranks of the company at the holding company level. So said another way, he's a full partner in this business, just like the rest of us who, who started this this thing, which is excellent. And he's by far and away, and again, now that I'm partners with him, I'm, I'm no longer objective, I'm biased, but I think I'm right in saying he's clearly one of the most talented executors across several lanes in the independent wealth space, most specifically being that of M&A and growth. Once a firm is situated and stabilized and ready to become acquisitive, I don't think there's anybody better than Matt Brinker doing what he does, and, and, and the past has proven that. So anyway, that's where he sits in the organization. And day-to-day, -day, though, to make it more focused for the listeners, Matt is really spending most of his time in the equity business, identifying who our equity partners will be in the future, helping our existing equity partnerships grow, uh, and really just centering a lot of his focus around that and growing the companies we're invested with, which is what Matt does well. So I appreciate that. And I, again, want to come back to that equity side about who you're looking to invest in and who the target firms are. But I, want, I do want to ask a couple of things first. So 
It seems to me that the majority of firms that have been born in the last 10 years or so as part of this ecosystem related to the explosion of the RIA space, the breakaway model, is that every one of them was looking to solve for a gap or a hole in the industry landscape that they felt they could solve for. So with that in mind, what was the gap or the hole? that you were looking to solve for when you and your partners launched Merchant? It's a great question. And I toggle back and forth. Is it a gap or is it really just understanding an opportunity? I guess they're one and the same. I mean, first things first, and this is no knock on anything else that's out there in the industry, because everything that's out there today, whether it's a peer or a competitor of Merchant, they're all important. And I mean that. That's not just as some line. That, that's true. The more businesses that are out there that are growing and causing and affecting change, the better it is for the whole independent wealth movement, both for advisors and clients alike. With that said, for Merchant, you know, for us, we really were trying to figure out when we started the business, the best way to create a true alignment of interest. Very hard thing to do, right? I mean, a lot of times people overcomplicate it. I can speak for myself. But for Merchant, when we started it, uh, that was what we were trying to solve for. I think we did a great job of it, right? Create a true alignment of interest. And we can get into the specifics around what that means and, and how we've addressed that. Point one. Point two, wanted to try to find a way to show clear cut conviction alongside the operators of these companies. It's really, again, a tough thing to accomplish, but with some really well thought out steps, you can make it happen. And I think we've done that. Making sure that we put more into each of these partnerships than what we take out. And there's a lot to unpack in that, I think, in that statement. But for merchants, looking across the industry, bookend to bookend, trying to understand how we could build a business that creates a true partnership experience where when one puts something in, they take less out. So always putting more to the center of the table for the benefit of the partnership. And then also trying to fill a gap or a void or, or address the opportunity around building a true collaborative network comprised of all the essential components that one needs to be aligned with to, to run a great wealth business. The other thing too is, Mindy, with the industry landscape and what, what we're looking to do is we tried to figure out a way to build the right metrics into our model that would allow us to figure out who we should best partner with. So you look at four things. You look at the people in these businesses because we're in the business of people. That's one thing that's really important too. How do we align in a fair way? So one thing to create an alignment of interest, another thing to do it in a fair way. Again, very tough to do with two parties that are looking for the same goal in mind, working towards the same goal. You can do it. How do we add value beyond our capital? Another thing that we focus quite a bit on. And then lastly, does the firm want to and can they actually grow? So I know I just digress a little bit, but but I think those are four important points when you think through what Merchant was trying to address in the market and how we decide how we address that. Uh, those four components are key. That's fair and I appreciate it. Categories. You said your equity investors, minority investors, your lenders, you offer services by having partnered with firms like Advisor Assist, and I want to come back to that in a second, and offering now, you know, an alternatives or asset management arm. In total, in other words, we know that there are plenty of investors in the space, there were plenty of lenders in the space, there were plenty of service providers in the space, but in some total, who in the industry landscape or ecosystem is most like Merchant? It's a great question. I think you can unpack the answer in, in two ways. One is at the team level, the human level, right? In terms of the, the executive leadership in these organizations, I would say that there are many firms that have approached the market the same way we have in the sense of putting together a great team. Just, just call it what it is. As far as what we do, I think, I think we're unique. And I know that's a very generic thing to say, and, and every other firm should and would say the same thing about their organizations. But with us, we have peer groups in each of our four subunits or, or groups, as you've said. 
So on the equity side, I would tell you an immigrant is, is a really, really good peer. Kudu is a really good peer. A great respect for Lee Beck and Charlie and the team over there. Also a great respect for Carl Heckenberg and, and the team over there at Immigrant. And there are a few others, obviously, that are, that are in the marketplace that people think about when they think of minority or majority equity investing into wealth managers. On the credit side, we compete with everybody, right? When you're in the capital deployment business, when you're in the growth fuel business, specifically in the credit space, you've got banks out there, you've got uh, uh, all sorts of options along the lines of what really Live Oak pioneered in the beginning uh, in the space with Jason Carroll back in the day. So there's lots of competitors, Mindy. And by the way, I think that's a very good thing. I agree with you. It's a good thing. But what is then the advantage or disadvantage from your perspective of a firm choosing to, let's say, sell a minority portion of its equity to merchant? What's the advantage then of merchant as a partner where it's kind of all in one place as opposed to going to an equity partner like Emigrant, a lending partner like Live Oak, a service provider like Advisor Assist if it weren't part of merchant, et cetera? Yeah. Well, first thing is return on time. Second thing is different groups or different essential needs that actually can speak to one another. But again, sometimes it's just different strokes for different folks, right? Sometimes people like things all in place and sometimes people like things coming from separate places. And I know, again, simple concept, but it really is a matter of, Mindy, what's best for the consumer. And uh, we've intentionally built our firm that way where somebody can get a loan from us for their business and choose not to engage us on the equity side or vice versa, frankly. Somebody can come to our services businesses and use an advisor assist and, and actually not borrow money or take equity capital from us or listen to us or want to talk to us about asset management. And so, again, we've intentionally built our business this way. And I think that bundled or commingled or all in one place uh, is one version and totally distributed and separate is another version. And it's and again, as I said at the start, it's really up to the consumer to have that optionality and to, to consume as they see best fit for the business. I think as this ecosystem has expanded and there are more options, which we agree is a good thing for the ultimate, you know, the, the end user, meaning the client and the advisor mm-hmm. as client, it all comes down to people, yes. who you're most comfortable with, who you like. And if you like the people at Merchant and you like what they're all about in their background, you'll buy from Merchant. And if not, you may go elsewhere. So I think that that's fair. Yep. We've mentioned advisor assist mm-hmm. a couple of times. Can you just take a minute, if you would, and tell us what it is? And I know Merchant has invested or owns, I don't know, is it all or part of Advisor Assist? So what is Advisor Assist and what place does it hold in the ecosystem? Yeah, I know for starters, we stay consistent for the most part across everything we do. We're minority, non-control, collaborative, and growth-minded partners. Chris Wynn and the rest of the team there, Chris obviously being the founder over 12, 13 years ago, they are the majority equity holders of that business. We are by design, uh, a distant minority, but we behave like we're majority partners in the sense that we work hard every day at that business. Uh, like with all of our partnerships, it's just what we promise to ourselves and the folks that we get in business with. Um, for Advisor, it's just it's, it's a really great company. I mean, I you know, learning about the firm uh, dating back to my days at Dynasty and watching it grow and really getting to become friends. Again, you'll see a key theme here. We're kind of contrarian to the fact that to the contrarian to the statement that people make, which is you can't work with your friends. So I had the good fortune of becoming friends with Chris Wynn and the folks over there and really earning, gaining a lot of respect for what he does and how he does it and how many firms he does it for in such a high integrity and institutional quality type way where he's doing the upfront business setup on a legal side, 
helping these companies get situated, helping them get stabilized, helping them really put into practice their vision of being an independent wealth manager. And then equally as important on an ongoing basis, doing the ongoing compliance and a lot of that outsourced work and really just, for lack of better terms, tightening all the risk valve, Mindy, on these independent wealth management firms. Because let's face it, there's very few things that can really put these businesses out of business, but compliance and getting chalk on your shoes, as the great Chip Mason used to say, back at leg. That's the only thing that can really create a significant problem for you. Chris does an awesome job of making sure that that never gets in the way of uh, the businesses growing and doing what they do every day. Yeah. So we talked about Matt Brinker and how he will be spending or is spending the majority of his time identifying new equity partners. So who are your target firms? Who is the ideal firm that Matt Brinker and Merchant would be most excited about partnering with? Well, the first thing is it's quality over quantity. You said it best just a moment ago and, and simply said it's really about the people. So the first thing is it's about the art more Mindy than it is about the science. We get to the science always second. So the first thing is a really, a really good person, somebody that you relate with, somebody that you want to talk to, somebody that you can have a conversation with, somebody that you can have over your house. Say, again, I know these are things that are often and unfortunately overlooked in financial services because we're such a science-oriented industry around returns and AUM and revenue and all these things. And, and by the way, all those things are super important. They make this thing go. But first, it's finding out who the people are. And honestly, it's well beyond the boardroom. It's the people. It's not the people in the suit. It's the people 24 hours a day. So understanding who they are, who's behind them at home, that matters to us. Because keep in mind, when you're an equity investment partnership-minded shop, where a lot of the equity is principal capital, you really have to, regardless of if you should, you have to think that way. So that's the first thing is the people. The second thing is we have to be realists around the difference between somebody wanting to grow and somebody being able to grow. I wish I was a fast runner. I'm not, but I want to be able to run quickly, right? I mean, it's kind of funny, but, but everybody wants to grow for the most part in their own way, shape, and form. And that's a big thing that we look at, which is what's your vision around growth and unpacking what that really means to the operator and then what that might mean to us. And by the way, whether or not we can actually help the operator get to where they want to go along the lines of growth and understanding how they do growth with regards to organic growth and inorganic growth, so unpacking the growth story. That's a big part of what we look at. And then there's the, the just the, frankly, the size of a business where it makes sense for us and it makes sense for them. And going forward, it feels like to us, you know, we're really looking at that billion plus mark in terms of assets. And at that stage, you can do a lot in the market, both defensively as well as offensively at that size. Of course, depending upon the velocity of the, the ROA of the business, a billion dollars can look a lot differently when it comes to bottom line you know, when, you, when you put businesses like that next to each other. But broadly speaking, that's really important to us. The other thing is we have to look for, and I said this earlier in our, in our discussion, we have to look for fair entry points with people. We want to be fair. We want our partners, our prospective partners to be fair in the way that we think with each other around value. Every alignment exercise we go through, we, we know that we're always going to spend a little bit more than we want to spend, but you're going to take a little bit less than you want to take because we're going into our partnerships with, a again, a long-term permanent durable mindset. Nobody should take advantage of anybody, especially not on the way in. So uh, we, we, really, we really focus on that. And then the other thing is, how do we add value across the board? I think a lot of folks, um, you know, and this is all part of the assessment, a lot of folks will look at, again, quote in air quotes, how do you financially engineer a transaction? We don't financially engineer anything. It's a very straightforward structure we have. And I don't need to bore you with the details of that in this conversation. But how do we add value? Uh, it's not just with growth. Can we really plug our engine into your car and make it match? And that's a much longer, again, conversation. Mindy. I'm going to be mindful of time. But there's so much we look at to decide who the right firm is for us 
and a lot of that is really, are we right for them? We just have to be frank on that front. It's not about just putting money into the ground at all. It's about partnership. That analogy, it's about putting our engine in your car. Mm-hmm. It's not only about does it match, but I guess is it, do we have the opportunity to make it better? And I imagine that the calculus for an owner operator to begin to think about selling a portion of equity to a partner is, you know, the willingness to give up total control comes down to uh, how much they believe you're able to make them better. So maybe let's start with just by way of example. I know that you've invested in a number of high profile RIA firms. So can you tell us a little bit, like, let's pick one or two of them and about the investments you've made and the work that you do for those firms? Sure. I'll give you a few names beyond one or two, and then we can zero in on one or two. One per se is off the bat is Summit Financial, and I'm kind of going in reverse order of what's been most recent in the press, but Summit Financial, uh, headed up by Stan Greger, another former colleague of mine and, and, and very, very close personal friend is the CEO of Summit Financial. They're in Parsippany, New Jersey. And another one of our mutual friends, Mindy Ed Friedman, just joined as a very senior member of that team. So, uh, just, just so happy to be back with Ed, by the way. So anyway, Summit Financial is out there. That's one of our firms uh, in the partnership. A business that's been heard a lot less of in Austin, Texas, Legacy One is a business that it's a really special story. It was the first partnership we put in place, and it's something that the market should hear much more about over the next few months. And there's a whole host of reasons there. So Legacy One out there in Austin, Texas, headed up by Kevin Lang, who founded the business. Apollon, uh, Apollon is, a, is, a, is a unique business, really growing a lot out of South Carolina. And uh, we have Paragon in San Francisco and then Jeff Gitterman in New Jersey. So I said a few names. There's a bunch more, but those are those are a few that uh, that just come to mind. Thank you. Let's pick one of them. So you said Legacy One is a business that people should know about. It's an RIA firm in Austin, Texas. You said it's your first partnership. Yep. So just tell us very quickly, what is Legacy One? What is its value proposition? What What is the work that you do for them? And what I'd really like to hear is why did the principal of Legacy One choose to sell a portion of equity to merchant? Yeah. So, well, the first thing with Legacy One, if you look at the business, the business actually came off of an IBD chassis, was set up as an independent RIA back in 2017. The business has grown more than twofold since we've become partners with Kevin Lang and Jim Fortescue and the rest of the operating team and, and, and advisor team there. And by the way, that last part of the sentence, I think, is key operating team and advisor team. That Legacy One is a business that we've helped go from one stage to the next in its evolution from, you know, when you think about it, you can go from a practice to a business to an enterprise. And Legacy One feels like it's really getting to that nice middle ground between business on its way to financial services company and eventually enterprise. The business is now at a point where it's looking to become selectively acquisitive. It's got a very substantial, stable capital base. And more importantly than that, as I said before, an operating team that's actually deal ready and event ready and able to absorb and bring on more advisors and more clients. And it has really good processes and systems in place, which is, as you know, are essential for one to optimize their return on time. Today, all in with AUA and everything, it's um, you know probably a $2 billion, $2 billion firm. 
Okay, got it. And then, you know, look, we know that playing in this space, that the number one reason why an owner operator or principal would choose not to sell at all, forget about should the investor be merchant or somebody else, but mm -hmm. just selling it all is that it's anathema to want to give up control. I've built this business is my baby. I've built it from nothing. It's of me. Why would I want to sell any portion of my cash flow and give up control? So what was it that made Kevin Lang and his operating team ready to sell at all? And then why merchant? Yeah, look, for Kevin and for others, Mindy, it's really a matter of, I think, can we do more together than we can do apart? And it also is, Mindy, driven heavily by one's vision. And also, when you think about the word sell and the word align, selling to me and to us and to the recipients of our capital is really when you're going to sell you know, a majority position, a 50%, a 51% position. When you're aligning with somebody and they're coming into a 20% position or below in the firm, you still behave as if you own 100%, right? Only now you have a lot more help and you have a lot more strategic direction from an objective third party to come help you again achieve your goals. Now, specifically, those goals typically when we make an investment, as I said before, they center around emanating the ability to pursue that strategy. They center around going to get different types, perhaps larger, more complex clients, A and B, a larger percentage of one's existing wallet share. And then C, and we do this for a lot of our partnerships as well, helping the advisor on behalf of the clients navigate the street across all solutions. So helping really the firm behave as if it's a single family office in a multifamily office construct. We find ourselves doing that with our partner firms literally on a daily basis. And those are just a few of the reasons why Legacy One and the others have partnered with us. Got it. And I mean, I guess it's a heavy lift and a long process to be able to make tangible that statement. We're going to make you event ready. We're going to help you navigate the street. We're going to help you grow in a way you couldn't before. We're going to solve for succession. I mean, I imagine that there are a whole lot of investors or capital or strategic partners that would say the same thing. What do you think it is that actually convinces someone, and I don't mean convince in a salesy way, but how do you go about sort of connecting the dots to make that really feel tangible to someone that you're really able to add value that someone else can't? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, that was one of the biggest issues when we started the firm that we knew we had to hold true to everything we say. I mean, you have to be honest with yourself. And if you can't deliver something, then don't say you can. I think it reverts back to the people. In investing, there's that little disclaimer, past performance is not indicative of future results. In the game that we play and in the business that we're in, I think it's the opposite of that. And if you look at the team, we can point to each other across the table to somebody we're contemplating partnership and say, we're going to take you through 20 case studies relevant ones, real ones, tangible ones that will show you what we do every day, why we do it, how we do it from beginning to end. And then the other thing, Mindy, that's very helpful too, is we have such an open-minded set of peers in our network or our ecosystem that we find that you know managing partner, CEO, principal, whatever you want to categorize these operators as to each other, they talk a lot. So it's very easy to help one who's considering partnership with us understand what it might be like by connecting them openly with their peers. And it's a situation where, Mindy, we don't even need to, nor do we really want to be in that conversation. We really want to drive forward the peer-to-peer -peer so that they can all live off and learn off of each other's experiences. And the proof is in the results. Again, we've been doing this now for going on a few years. And the results on the growth side have, have really spoken for themselves. So it's, uh, we're very fortunate. That said, because we're just a few, right? We don't have a massive team that's by design. We really have to be selective about the partnerships we engage in because we never want to have too much or any, for that matter, gap 
between what we say we can do and what we can actually deliver. And the biggest issue you have with that, Mindy, is your time, right? That's our most valuable asset and we don't have a lot of it. So that's another big thing that we think about. And oh, by the way, as we grow the firm, we'll continue, as we've shown with, with Matt coming on board and with Summit taking on Ed Friedman, we will continue to bring on exceptional people to make sure that our bandwidth issue uh, never gets stretched too far. And of these firms, whether it be the four you mentioned or any of the other partner firms you've invested in, how are they faring during this crisis? I guess, how are they faring in general and how is Merchant adding value? Yeah, in general, they're doing well. Uh, In general, they're doing well. And through this crisis, they've done on a relative basis very well. Actually, some of the businesses quietly have made acquisitions during this period of time which may surprise some folks. But again, the market's been quietly still active, right? If you look at what's been going on and deals or uh, partnerships that have been being put in place. So we're they're out there. They're working quite well. We're not seeing too significant of an asset drop. And by the way, I think if you look at where, and I don't know where the market is today at this exact time, actually, I'm sorry, it's up, uh, equities are up uh, over 2%. But if you look at the one-year number, Mindy, on the equity markets were flat. So on a relative basis, these firms are doing very well. Uh, and I, I really feel like from what I see with our broad pipeline, again, I have, uh, you know, I, from my seat, I can see across all 18 partnerships on the wealth side and, and the three or f- the four service firms. I mean, we have 25 businesses that are in our ecosystem. I don't think people realize that we have that much going on uh, in the merchant ecosystem. I think on a daily basis, Mindy, just digress for a minute. We touch over a thousand firms. Between our credit business, our equity business, and our services partnerships, we touch a lot of firms, a lot of operators, and tons of households directly and indirectly. And what I can tell you from that perspective, you know, from that viewpoint, the firms are doing well. Ones we're invested in, ones we're not invested in. Wealth management is a great business to be in. And it's one of the things, Mindy, that we would all agree outside of financial services, if we take our hats off for a second, you look in from the outside, wealth managers are needed for all different types of families and people. And and these businesses are going to survive and do well, and they're going to grow off the back of this because they're an essential service to our community. Indeed. I couldn't agree with you more. You had a bird's eye view, having been an early stage partner at Dynasty Financial Partners. And I guess one of the things I think about is that firms like Dynasty, who around a decade ago came on the scene to be really a major player in this ecosystem, in from where I sit, really enabling breakaway advisors to do it and to do it well. Because before Dynasty came along, there were two major things that prevented would-be breakaways, wirehouse advisors or advisors that were employees of brokerage firms going independent. One was a turnkey way to get there. The simplicity just felt like too much of a heavy lift. And two was access to capital. These were people that were walking away from unvested deferred comp and the notion of moving without deal money was anathema. So what do you think Dynasty's success in the past decade says about the diaspora of advisors who have and are continuing to break away from the wirehouse world. So I guess I'm shifting to the industry as a whole. And what do you think Dynasty's role was in fostering that growth? And what do you think it's going to look like going forward? Well, look, I'm biased, right? I was there on day one and uh, I had the good fortune of sitting next to Cheryl Penny and Todd and Ed Swenson and that team and watching everything kind of develop on the back of a napkin and then on a whiteboard and then in the office that we were leasing uh, there in Midtown. So the first thing I would tell you, Dynasty is a pioneer in the independent space. You have to commend them every day. And now I'm speaking as an outsider. <laughs> They've really blazed a path for people to open companies and to have confidence 
confidence is a key word here. Confidence around what it is they can do versus what it is they're afraid of. I mean, let's just cut to it. There was a lot of fear before firms like Dynasty in the space around the unknown of what it really meant to be independent. And businesses back, and I remember when we started this company, December 2010, I remember like it was yesterday. At that point, I feel like there was an opening of transparency, less dark corners, more knowns, which in turn create more confidence. So, so what that did then is it helped catalyze further the movement of people running fully towards something. I think it helped and has helped more and more each year, Mindy, with firms like Dynasty and now with Merchant and other businesses in the space. It's helped advisors who want to build their own companies realize this isn't about me running from a bank or a wirehouse. The bank is not bad. This is about me running towards my next end game, my future, my legacy, right? My vision. That's where the business is going today. And I think if you see where it is, it's just getting stronger. The momentum is picking up. We hit little speed bumps or big potholes like this most recent one. But all these companies, Mindy, and I'm not preaching, I'm just stating what I see. They're built to last. These firms are built to last. They're centered around people that run them and they're centered around the families that rely on them. And none of those things are going anywhere. What do you think, if any, are the biggest issues that the RIA principles or RIA space will need to solve for now and into the future? whether it be as a result of this COVID crisis or anything else? I honestly don't know that the issues are changing much from this point forward, including COVID, right? You've got the need to optimize return on time. You've got the need to ensure, case in point today more than ever, though, that you are a durable business. And sometimes that's capital related. Sometimes it's not capital related. Sometimes it's outside partner needed. Sometimes it's just internal. You've got off the back of that, the need for succession. It's unbelievable. Still to this day, I feel like too many people, and this is, this is actually a big issue, I feel like too many advisors don't plan for succession until it's too late or almost too late. So that's a big piece of the industry that just seems to be talked about a lot, but not put into practice a lot. And to me, that's not a problem, but it's an issue that has to certainly get more attention. And then, and then growth is always one that people want to talk about, but unpacking what growth means for principals, for operators, for advisors in these organizations, it's you want to grow, how do you grow, what's the best way to grow, and at the end of the day, what's the definition for your firm of responsible growth? How do you achieve responsible growth? It's not about how many you can do, how many acquisitions you can make, how many clients you can onboard, because the minute you make a mistake and you bring the wrong component into your home, meaning your firm, it's very hard to take three more steps back to go back to where you were before. So you've got to, I think what I'm really trying to say, Mindy, is as these firms grow, really all the firms, merchant included, we have we think every day about what can be done to us, way ahead of what can be done for us. And sometimes you're defined by more what you don't do and who you don't work with and the clients you don't take on relative to the ones that you do. And so being a contrarian in that way is, I think, really important as these principles navigate business ownership on their own. Well, I think that that's absolutely right. And so if we focus a minute on M&A, you mentioned the term before, event ready. You said we help firms under our umbrella to become event ready. You talked about that with respect to Legacy One becoming you know, an operating team that is event ready. So what, do you, what does that term mean? And how do you do that? I mean, how do you make a firm that isn't necessarily event ready on their own become event ready? 
yeah, event ready is defined in two ways. It's defined art and science, it's defined culture and and actually integration, right? And 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 then and then practice thereafter as it relates to investing and and all sorts of things. But the first thing to to decide if you're event ready is is your firm culturally ready to have an event? And by the way, the events can be a whole mixture of of scenarios, right? It can be taking on a to what to rewind for a second. It could be taking on an outside investor, a strategic partner. It could be acquiring an advisor with capital or without capital. It could be internal buy-in from G2 into, you know, G2 buying equity from G1. So there's all sorts of different events. The first thing is decide if you're event ready by deciding what it is you're looking to do in terms of an event. So know where you really are is the first thing. The second thing is making sure that you're financially sound and also making sure that when you do have something that's in front of you, you can actually execute off the back of what it is you're discussing. I feel like very often, whether it's in financial services, wealth management, or other business lines, many people have great vision, but the business plan isn't worth the piece of paper it's written on unless you can execute it. So all too often, advisors together, and we see this often, right? They get together, they have a great idea, they like each other, and then it gets time to figure out how to bring it to one, and it just can't get past that point. And that's because one of the businesses is not event ready. And event ready beyond the financials could also be, well, geez, I got to the two-yard line, and I don't like the way it feels. I don't want to step into the end zone. So also deciding before you spend all that time, my point is you're event ready when you can get to the crux of the issue right out of the gate. Time is valuable. And what are the kinds of things that Merchant either has done for their partner firms to make them event ready? Or if you're speaking to one of our listeners that's wondering, gee, am I event ready? How does one or can one make themselves event ready? Um, It goes into a couple of pods or lanes, but your systems, are they built for scale? Your cost structure, is it optimized? Your story in the market, does it have differentiation to it? Will it resonate with advisors and clients alike? And then how do you structure these, in some cases, in these these transactions? How do you think about all that? Once you have that playbook figured out, then you can really go out and systematically figure out how to move forward with an event. It's pretty simple, Mindy. But but again, when you think about it, for businesses that are running the day-to-day, this typically gets passed to the back end of the priority list, much like succession. It's like paying your bills, right? Everybody kind of gets through the day, the market opens, the market closes, they do their client calls. And then at seven o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, they go, oh, I want to acquire a firm. Oh, I want to take in an outside partner. And what you think you can get done in six months actually ends up taking five years because you never make it a priority. So maybe the first thing is if you want to do it, make it a priority. Well, and do it strategically is what you're talking about. But the other thing from where I sit, which actually makes us laugh, is the firms that, you know, everybody wants to be a buyer. So everyone agrees with you. Wealth management is an awesome business to invest in for a whole lot of reasons. And as such, the natural evolution of an RAA firm is, okay, I I started the firm. I've successfully built the firm, and now the next step should just be to become a buyer. So I guess my next question is, how can a firm determine if it should be a buyer or a seller? Well, I mean, maybe the first thing with with whether or not you want to be a buyer or seller is, as we said just a moment ago, are you ready for either or? Are you ready for an event? A seller is somebody, plainly said, who feels like they have reached the peak of their growth trajectory often. Now, listen, there's different reasons to sell. So if you're looking for a full takeout, maybe the founder of the business is just done working day to day and they want to put themselves into a vice chairman or chairman role. And that's a very good reason to be a seller. Now, the question is for the buyer in that case, has the seller thought through in a clear way their succession plan? Because there has to be durability to what it is the buyer is acquiring. 
right? If the client isn't going to stick around because the advisor who was covering them is leaving and there's no succession plan that's been preset five, six, seven years in place, well, then what is there to buy? So there's a lot to put into you know, the learnings there and as to whether or not one can proceed as a seller and what the buyer should look at. Uh, look, a buyer is ready as a buyer when they realize that they want to diversify their paths of growth. So a lot of businesses focus just on organic growth, right? Getting more wallet share, going up market, going up in terms of complexity of client. But when you start to think about running this as an organization, as a business, as an enterprise, you have to diversify your revenue streams. When you get to that point, there's really, a, really only one way to do that, and that's through becoming acquisitive. The next component of, of moving to, to actual action along those lines is having somebody see from the outside, I think, really, whether or not your business is built to take on capital to incur leverage and to go buy something else. If you just put it in big picture format for a second, the business has to also be the right size to buy something else. All too often you hear of a business, and this is no knock on size, a $100 million firm trying to acquire a $500 million business. It's doable, but it's, it's a lot easier if you're a billion dollar firm buying one that's 250 or 500. And there's a whole list of things, Mindy, to go through that would help either side figure out if the timing is right and what the right path forward is to, uh, to execute off the back of that. Do you think that this corona crisis, this unprecedented global health and financial crisis will impact M&A and valuations? Will it impact the way merchant will think about valuing firms? Look, I think, I think it's going to impact everything. The question is in what way? So two things come to mind. One is at the end of the last crisis, we saw, and I forget the exact statistics, Matt Brinker would be the right one actually to cite these, but I think at the end of 2008, we saw a significant spike in volume, both through outside investing into firms and also through just generally speaking M&A. And then as it relates to merchant, from the way we do things, the way we invest, in no way, shape, or form does this crisis put us in a position to be more excited about being opportunistic along the lines of deploying our capital? I have no interest in trying to understand how to minimize the value of a firm based upon a downdraft at the end of the first quarter. No interest in it, won't do it. It's not how we do business. That said, across the industry, obviously, you would see some sort of a reset here. I'm seeing it. We're seeing it already. Generally speaking, in terms of multiples, I do think that they're coming into a more realistic level, maybe by one or two turns, but not drastically. So maybe if a firm was trading for 12, it'll trade for 10. Maybe if a firm was trading for 10, it'll trade for eight. But again, you're not seeing this massive cram down of value and this massive compression or decrease in multiple. I think it's, uh, look, again, as I said before, the markets have, have slowly come back. Who knows where they'll be next month or one quarter from today or next year. But as it stands today, these businesses are still doing a nice job. And I don't think that they, as operators, should suffer too much as it relates to enterprise value off the back of this. I think I agree. And we've spoken with a number of valuation experts through this, and I think that they all sort of see it the same way. The right firms built the right way will really hold their value. How about succession planning? So what's your point of view on crafting an internal succession plan versus selling to an outside buyer? Yeah. I mean, I think you got to start inside first, for sure, and see if you can accomplish it internally. I think a very good way to do that, dependent upon how much equity has to exchange hands, a good way to do that is through a credit or a lending provider who can actually help you think through the structural components of what you'll do with the money and how you'll facilitate the succession. Now, that said, and I'll speak just from personal experience now, when I look at some of our partner firms, when a succession not target, but opportunity presents itself. And a business has several owners and is looking to, for example, at the primary owner side of things or level, sell down a significant stake in the business. A firm like ours with a director through one of our hubs, uh, partner firms, comes can come in, 
you could do a minority equity investment from the outside and then subsequently finance the internal buyers to buy down the rest of the remaining capital that the initial founder is looking to part with. So it's several transactions within one that can be authored and crafted and customized for. Let me ask you one final question because your perspective is so fascinating because you've got such a lens, a wide lens into the breakaway market, into the mind of a small RAA firm who's looking to grow into the evolution of a practice, as you say, from a practice to a business to an enterprise. But from your perspective, what do you think the next big thing is for the industry at large? I think my answer is going to be a boring one, but I think it's maybe the right one. I think you're going to see a lot more of these firms, and they already view each other this way regardless, but it'll be more apparent, I think, over the next however many years, much less competitors and much more peers and collaborative partners. I think you're going to start to see more and more businesses come together, not to form exactly what Joe and Matt built with United Capital, but but of that size, of that scope, of that scale, of that good complexity type, because at the end of the day, nobody likes to be on an island. Even if it's an island that has good food and good weather, eventually you want to go see other people. And I think you're going to see the industry come back together more and more, build bigger things, better things alongside each other. And I think it'll make for better outcomes across the board. And the theme there is more, more capital, more technology, more innovation, and more collaboration across the board. And do you think that someone who is an employee right now at Merrill Lynch, at Morgan Stanley, at UBS, or any traditional brokerage firm, what would you say to them about the independent space? Bullish, bearish, what would you say? Oh, I mean, the, the independent space. And again, if you're listening, I'm not objective, but what I can tell you as an investor personally in the space, an operator in the space, and somebody who's learned a lot in the space, this space is incredibly mature. It's incredibly safe. It's incredibly well thought out, and it's tremendously capitalized. And some of the institutions that support this space are the largest, most durable institutions across financial services. And we're seeing that increase more and more every day. Publicly traded businesses are changing their business models to accommodate in many different ways this independent movement. And this movement for a long time hasn't been just an advisor movement. It's been a client movement too. And the success of the space is, is nothing short of astounding. And I think the growth will be nothing short of exponential moving forward. I tend to agree with you. Tim, I can't thank you enough for your time, for your expertise, for your generosity of thought. We wish Merchant well, excited to see more of what you're doing, and I uh, hope you'll come back again. Thanks, Minnie. You're the best. Thank you. I'm grateful for Tim's perspective on the RIA space, an evolution that he helped architect. From early stage partner of Dynasty to founder and managing partner of Merchant Investment Management, Tim shared keen insights into the future and what he sees as the value of a growth partner in a firm's life cycle. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration may require. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908 
879-1002 or these days on my cell at 973-476-8578 or always by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And a special thanks to advisorhub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.